Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. As I mentioned earlier, Pastor Lloyd is on vacation, so you get me both leading the service and giving the message today. Sorry if, uh, if that disappoints you. <laughs> today is uh, June 25th, isn't it? I think that's today's date. That's what I have down. And today is actually uh, the, what many theologians call and historians call the birthday of the Lutheran Church. Because it was on June 25th, 1530, that the Augsburg Confession was given before Emperor Charles V. Uh, they, They asked the Lutheran churches of the Reformation, they were asked to codify their beliefs and their teachings. Uh, Thirteen years before that, in 1517, was when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, um, stating his beliefs, stating some things that he really wanted to discuss. It wasn't as dramatic of an act as we might make it out to be in our minds because the the church door was kind of the bulletin board of that day. And so Luther nailed his 95 Theses saying, I want to talk about these things. Four years after that, in 1521, uh, Luther was was gathered, uh, was called to a gathering in Worms, Germany, uh, there to defend his teachings. And he was given the ultimatum, recant or die. And he said, unless I am convinced by reason or sacred scripture, I cannot recant, I can do no other. Here I stand, so help me God. And then from that time, from 1521 to 1530, the Reformation began spreading. The gospel was being rediscovered. And there were many who were breaking with the church in Rome. Uh, and some of them uh, were radical and extreme. And they were even denying some, some basic doctrines of Christianity, including the deity of Christ or his sinless perfection. Lutheran theologians during that whole time were holding true to the, to the teachings of Scripture. And so they were asked to to gather together and to present what they believed. Uh, There was a meeting called in the spring of 1530 in Augsburg, Germany, and out of that came what we we call today the Augsburg Confessions. Uh, You can actually find it in your hymnal, in your ambassador hymnal on page 80. Takes up about what 15 to 20 pages somewhere in there, or you can uh, you can check out the the bigger, thicker version of it that has a little bit of more helps. And this is in the library in the back there, uh, but it really codified what Lutherans be- believed, what they taught, and um, again, that was June 25th. 1530, a few years ago. One of the main issues that the churches of the Reformation had with the Roman Catholic Church was this issue of papal authority. The Roman Catholic Church looked back to Peter as this first in a long line, unbroken line of popes. 
And we're going to talk about that more later on in the sermon, why that's wrong. But I bring all of this up because of the history today being June 25th, but also because of our sermon text for today. Matthew chapter 16 is often used as the proof text, if you will, for the authority of the popes. But what does Jesus really promise? We'll look in, into that uh, this morning. In this text, Matthew chapter 16, looks at Peter and some of the highest points of his life and also some of the lowest points as well. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open up Matthew chapter 16. Um, we'll start at verse 13, read through 23. And if you're able, would you rise this morning as God's word is read? Again, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, reading in Jesus' name. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are, not a, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Please sanctify us this morning in that truth. May the words of my mouth, may the meditations of every present heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The, uh, the 2024 presidential election is uh, more than a year away, but we're very much in the thick of political ads and opinion polls, aren't we? Uh, it seems about every day we're reminded of the current president's approval rating and where all the Republican challengers stand within regards to each other, right? In Jesus' day, there was no associated press to take public opinion polls. So Jesus asks his disciples what the public sentiment towards him is. Who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? In verse 14, it says this, And they say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. You see, John the Baptist had already been beheaded. That occurs a couple of chapters earlier in Matthew. And some people must have believed that John the Baptist had come back to life, gotten his head back and been okay. <laughs> and they said, this is John the Baptist come back to life. 
Uh, others said, no, this is, this is the Old Testament prophet Elijah who was supposed to come as the forerunner of the Messiah. So Jesus is just the forerunner, and after him will come somebody else. But Jesus had already said that John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Uh, in the next chapter, chapter 17, Jesus will say that Elijah, Elijah has already come, but they did not recognize him. They did to him whatever they pleased. <laughs> they cut off his head. Elijah, Jesus says, has already come. Other people said Jeremiah or another one of the prophets. And again, uh, these guys are already dead. But yet the Jews were looking back, hoping that God would bring back one of these famous prophets to speak to them. Hmm. It's interesting. Who, who do people say that I am? If you were to ask people today, you'd probably get uh, vastly different ideas. And um, this is a 2015 study by Barna, so it's a little bit old. Uh, but in 2015, Barna asked, uh, asked people, who is Jesus? And a vast majority of people, uh, both believers and non-believers, said that 92%, by the way, 92% of people believe that Jesus was a real historical figure, that he actually walked on earth, 92%. But only 56% believe that he was or is divine, a god of some sort. 25% believe he was just a good religious teacher. And I wonder if, uh, if you did that survey again today, uh, what those numbers would look like. It would be interesting if you go to Olive Garden for lunch or, or wherever and you asked people, who do you think Jesus is? Just that question. Don't ask them your opinion. Just ask them, who do you think Jesus is? Uh, it would be interesting to hear uh, what kind of results you get. Uh, Albert Einstein big brain, really smart guy. Albert Einstein said this. He said, I'm a Jew, but I'm enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. Jesus is too colossal for the pen of phrase mongers, however artful. He said, no man can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth, Einstein said, no myth is filled with such life. Theasis, who was the mythical founder and king of Athens, and the other heroes of, of that type lack authentic vitality that Jesus had. The actual presence of Jesus. I think Einstein believed that Jesus was a real God and did amazing, wonderful things, separate from all the other ancient myths. But the, the scientific, scientific, logical, rational side of Einstein could not believe in, a, in the Jesus who's lord over creation. Uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, who was the former leader of the Soviet Union um, and was a leader when communists fell, said this. He said, Jesus is the first socialist, the first to seek a better life for all of mankind. Gandhi, who was the spiritual and political father of the modern nation of Is India, uh, was known for his pacifism, his nonviolence, said this. Gandhi said, I know of no one who has done more for humanity than Jesus. In fact, there is nothing wrong with Christianity. Hmm. And Gandhi goes on and he, he said this. He said, uh, the trouble is with you Christians. <laughs> you, not, not, you do not begin to live up to your own teachings. <laughs> 
I think Gandhi's kind of got a point there, right? But that's a side note and, and everything like that. Uh, Gandhi believed that Jesus was just a do-gooder who came to earth, taught us how to love one another, taught us how to be kind to one another, taught us how to do good. And if you were to ask people on the street, your Olive Garden waitress, they would probably say, uh, yeah, Jesus was a good teacher who gave good lessons, who loved everybody. Some other people might believe that Jesus was a, a legend, a real person who did good things, but like most fish stories, the tail gets taller the further you go down the line. That fish gets bigger. Some people might believe that Jesus is a myth akin to uh, Paul Bunyan or the Loch Ness Monster or Bigfoot. In verse 15, Jesus wants to know the disciples' personal thoughts. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And this is the most important question that you could ever find an answer to. And Jesus asked it to Peter and the disciples. And he asks it to each one of us as well. Who do you say that Jesus is? Nothing less than your eternal destiny is at stake in how you answer that question. And so Peter confesses his faith. Peter's confession of faith is found in verses 15 and 16 where he declares the uniqueness of Jesus. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This was Peter's confession of faith. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The use of the word the or the is pretty important as Peter goes throughout that. You are the Christ, not one of a bunch of Christs, not one of a bunch of a way, ways to God, but you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. As the Christ, Jesus is the anointed one. That's what the word literally means, to anoint or to rub oil on. The Hebrew word is Messiah. In the Old Testament, all the kings were anointed with oil, were messiahed, if you will, with oil, marking their kingship. And the same thing could be said of Christ. And then uh, another connection with the word Christ goes back to the Old Testament kings. And there David was promised by the Lord that he would never lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel. That there would always be a king on Israel's throne. But that promise seemed to be broken uh, in the subsequent civil war and then the exiles to Assyria and to Babylon. And so the Old Testament saints began to realize that this probably wasn't a physical, literal kingship, but maybe a spiritual one. Some, so they were looking forward to someone who would come and restore the fortunes of Israel, both spiritually and as a nation. And they were awaiting this, this anointed one, this royal king who would fulfill all of the Old Testament promises and hopes. And Peter, here in these verses, declares that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. To Peter, Jesus wasn't just a miracle worker or a teacher. But this is the one that God has sent to deliver his people, to restore his people. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Son. Peter believed Jesus claims to be divine, the virgin birth of Jesus. Peter believed that. Jesus claims to divinity, I and the Father are one. Peter believed that. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, the only Son of God. <laughs> Anybody ever told you you're one in a million? 
<laughs> it's supposed to be a nice compliment, right? You're the one and only, right? You're the one for me, right? But when you sit and think about it, really, if somebody tells you you're one in a million, it just means you're like 8,000 other people out there, <laughs> right? Not that special, right? Jesus is the only son of God, not one of many, he is unique. John 3.16 describes Jesus as the one and only Son of God. And he's the Son of the living God. The, the Greco-Roman culture that, that Peter was living in well, was a culture that was steeped in a pantheon of gods and goddesses. Uh, the nations were full of idols of wood or stone or, or metal, things that were dead, lifeless effigies. Our God, Peter says, our God is not dead. He is living, living on the inside, roaring like a lion, right? That's how the Newsboys song goes. That captures the sentiment of what Peter is getting at here. He is living. He's active in our hearts and in our lives today. He cares about your struggles, your trials, the things that you are dealing with. Our God is a living God. And it's important to note that as Peter is, is making this confession here uh, in verse 16, he, he's not just stating mere intellectual uh, assent to these things. but He's declaring the conviction of his soul that had been given to him as he sat under Jesus' teaching and this belief that he had his heartfelt conviction. Next thing we catch in this text is the, the church's one foundation. Look again at verse 17. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Blessed are you. Congratulations, Peter. You got this right. <laughs> and Jesus recognizes that this isn't something, again, that Peter came up with, but this was from the Father. This was given to him by God. He didn't come to this conclusion on his own. Peter's faith in Jesus was a gift of God, just as our faith in Jesus isn't something that we conjure up for ourselves. Our faith that we have is also a gift. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 make that very clear. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Same thing with Peter. But then look at verse 18, and this is the, the proof text, really, that the Roman Catholics look at to defend uh, Peter's papal authority. It says this, Jesus again speaking, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Catholics look at this and say, see, look, Peter is the first in a, in a line of long, unbroken popes. The legend is that Peter blessed his successor, a guy by the name of Linus, who blessed his successor, a guy by the name of Cletus, who blessed his successor, all the way down to the current pope, Pope Francis. But in reality, this line of popes is a very fractured, broken line. There were a lot of times in, in church history where there was no pope or multiple people who claimed to be pope, and so they fought wars <laughs> over who got to be pope. Some early popes were martyred for their faith in Christ, and they could not pass on the papal blessing to the next pope. Uh, pope John Paul I was pope back in the 70s for all of... 33 days before he had a heart attack and died, and Pope John Paul II became Pope. The line of papal succession is very broken, so I don't think Jesus was building his church 
on Peter the man and Pope Peter later on. Instead, I believe that Jesus planned on building and has built his, true, his church on the truth of the confession on who Jesus is. As we sang before the sermon began, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. There's no one person, well, there is one person, I should say, who, who the church is built on. It's built on Jesus Christ. It's built on that confession of who Jesus is. And it's built brick by brick then on, on top of that foundation that's been laid down. And you, the Bible says, are members of that. You are living stones within the church of God, the temple of God. The word church is kind of a fun word. We use it to describe the buildings and the, the four walls or the six walls that line the sanctuary, right? But the word church, um, is, the Greek word is ekklesia. Ekklesia, and it literally means the called out ones. Those who have been assembled, those who have been gathered together. We have been called out of the world and to follow Christ. And notice whose church it is, by the way. Jesus says in verse 18, I will build my church. <laughs> this church is Christ's church, not the pastor's church. I kind of get sick and tired of, of people who say, you know, uh, even at conference, well-meaning people come up, oh, how many attend your church? <laughs> how many attend Pastor Will? It's not our church. <laughs> the church is not John Piper's church, not Tim Keller. It's Jesus' church, right? It's not our church. The church isn't a particular possession. The church is Christ's. It is his. And the Lord makes two promises to Peter and to us today in verses 18 through 21, the Lord's promises. First, he says, I will build my church. I will build my church. And as you look at the landscape here, especially in the United States, uh, there's evidence to the contrary. The church isn't being built up so much as it's being tore down. Last week, I, I mentioned the rise of the nuns. Um, now more than ever, people in the United States, especially Gen Zers, they don't identify with any religious affiliation. Uh, there's, they, they identify as a, a nun, right? And so their numbers are growing. But there's also a mass of what's been called ex-evangelicals. Uh, once prominent evangelical leaders who have now left the church and have left the faith. Uh, Josh Harris of the I Kiss Dating Goodbye fame. Uh, remember him? Uh, Kevin Max of DC Talk. They were a Christian band. He's left the faith. Marty Sampson of Hillsong has left the faith. Uh, each one of these guys and others as well have said, Christianity just isn't for me anymore, and they, they're called ex-evangelicals. Seems like in the United States, the devil's foothold has become a, a solid ground, a firm footing. So it might seem, as we look at it, that Jesus is not keeping his promise. But the church is growing. Uh, where is the church growing? The church is experiencing explosive growths in parts of Africa and Asia. The Center for Global Christianity at Gordon Cromwell University, which is near Boston, Massachusetts, they report that on average for the last 20 years, think of this, for the last 20 years, 
from 2000 to 2020, when their study ended, Africa experienced 37,825 new Christ followers every day. Every day for the last 20 years, 38,000 people in Africa are coming to Christ. Latin America in that same time frame experienced 17,000 people coming to Christ every day. Asia had over 13,000 people to coming to Christ every single day. In North America, we had about 2,000 people coming to Christ every single day in the last 20 years. Europe, <laughs> Europe had in the last 20 years, they had eight people coming to Christ every day. The church is growing. <laughs> we might not see it, but the church is growing in these once lost, hostile areas. The gospel is going forth. The Lord is, is honoring the faithful work of missionaries, sharing his word. Many Muslims, that's where they're seeing the most growth. Many Muslims, including Muslim clerics, are leaving Islam, coming to Christianity. It reminds me of, of the scene of Revelation chapter 7. Uh, there was a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and languages and peoples standing before the throne, before the Lamb. The church is growing. Jesus is building his church. The next promise is this. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Satan and his minions can never, ever defeat Christ or his church. Death is defeated. And this is comforting. When we see the world around us crumbling, we remember that this world is not our home. Our heavenly citizenship can never be taken away from us. In Christ, the battle is won. He will have the final word. Amen. The gates of hell shall not prevail. And then there's a, a promise we really don't have time to dive in today. Uh, it's the promise of the keys, the office of the keys. That'd be a very fun Bible study, but we'll leave it at this. Uh, and this is uh, what he talks about in verse 19. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of God. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It's verse 19. And we'll just say this. There is great comfort uh, as a Christian in, in confession and absolution knowing from Scripture that in Jesus your sins are forgiven and hearing that gospel promise through another person. There's great, forgive, or great comfort in that. Uh, we won't have time to study that today, uh, but that's another promise of Jesus. Uh, before we get into the second part, verse 20 is always an interesting part to me. Um, this, this, in, this radio silence that Jesus asks his disciples. He strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Just as the disciples are finally able to put words to what they believe about Jesus and who Jesus is, Jesus tells them, don't tell anybody. <laughs> he did this not to have them keep it secret. But I think he did this because he wanted people to come to a knowledge of his identity based on a right motive, a personal repentance rather than any political zeal that they might have to have. Uh, people had to come to the realization that Jesus was the Christ on their own. You can't force others. The Holy Spirit works on individuals differently. So going back to Peter and thinking of Peter and his life and this confession that he makes, this praise that Jesus gives him, Peter is brought pretty low, pretty quickly in the second half of our sermon text. <laughs> 
Have you ever had a day that's just going right, a perfect day, right, until all of a sudden the wheels come off? <laughs> Every light is, is green on the way to work. You find a spot in the shade to park. Your, your boss congratulates you on a project that you did well, right? Only to have a flat tire on your way home and dinner being burned in the oven and you go to mow the lawn and the lawnmower won't start. You get a call from your kid's teacher <laughs> on and on and on, right? This is kind of what Peter experienced here. Now, Matthew in this text doesn't connect these two events chronologically, one right after the other. We're not told exactly how much time passes between these, these verses, between verse 20 and verse 21. But we can probably be certain that some amount of time has passed. Uh, most modern translations pick up on that by separating these texts into two different uh, headings, two different categories. Uh, but uh, Peter's Peter's rebuke of Jesus, uh, the rebuke that he gives, and then the Lord's even stronger rebuke of Peter are, are very much, I think, connected to the things that just happened in Peter's confession of faith. It's almost, it's almost as if Matthew needs to remind us that Peter is still human. and We don't need to put him on a pedestal and worship him as Pope. Um, so let's look at this rebuke. First, it's Peter's rebuke of the Lord, and then the Lord's rebuke of Peter. In verse 21, you, you catch the Lord's plan. Look at verse 21 again. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Here is the Lord's plan. They've just got it all figured out that he is the Christ, the Messiah. And now Jesus shows them what that really means. This wouldn't be a glorious revolution against the evil, oppressive Roman uh, overlords. No, the Lord's plan was the way of suffering, the way of the cross. And it says he began to show them, began to demonstrate to them, began to teach them. He probably explained some Old Testament passages like Isaiah 52 and 53 and how that pointed forward to what he would have to endure. And I don't think this was a one-off Sunday school lesson for Jesus. No, I think he repeatedly began to demonstrate, began to show how he would do this. And all of us here today, we're very familiar with the, the passion narrative, the events of Good Friday and Easter. We're familiar with that, right? But for the disciples, put yourself in their place. This would be probably earth-shattering. This would have been very, very devastating news. Again, they've just figured out who the Messiah is, and it doesn't look like we thought it would. Their, their world might be kind of coming undone here. And notice what Jesus says. He says uh, that the, to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. That little word must is an important word. Absolute. There is no way around it for Jesus. Uh, the word must applies not just to their destination, to Jerusalem, that they must go to Jerusalem, but to all the other following things, going to Jerusalem, being suffering, being killed, being raised. Going to Jerusalem was where the opposition headquarters were, where they would be open to conflict and hostility, to suffer. And only Jesus knew what sort of suffering lay ahead for him. He doesn't tell his disciples of the mocking, of the betrayal, of the beatings that are going to go on. He just says, I will suffer. And then he must be killed. 
He must be killed as a sacrificial lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And we're familiar with that again. We, we know it inside and out, and it, be kind of comes whole, it becomes whole hum to us as we sit here and think about that. But the, the earth-shattering revelation that Jesus would have to die And we know that Jesus would be that sacrificial lamb being crucified in our place and on our behalf. He would take all of our sin upon himself. And for the disciples, this was was out of this world. This was something they had never thought of, never experienced before. Our, Our Lord, our Messiah, dying. But then Jesus says he must be raised, resurrected, victorious over sin, over death and over the devil. And these things were absolute and they needed to take place. And this plan, this plan was known before the beginning. It's not as if God made it up because the Adam and Eve failed, Moses failed, the Old Testament sacrifices failed, and now we're on to plan, you know, number four or five that I've got to pull out. No, uh, there's an interesting verse in Revelation 13 that describes Jesus as the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. Before the world even began, Jesus was the, the plan of God, slain before the foundation of the world. And this news, again, doesn't go over well with Peter. Look at verse 22 where Peter tells Jesus off. Peter rebukes Jesus in verse 22. Uh, he says, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Never. Peter was absolutely sure that this would never, ever happen. Jesus said it must happen. Peter said it will never happen. And I've often wondered what Peter's motivation for this was. Was he he really looking out for Jesus? Maybe he didn't want to see his Lord and his Master hurt. Maybe he had a wrong view of who the Messiah was and what he was set out to accomplish. Maybe Peter was still looking for a conquering king, and no, this isn't the way we go about that. Or maybe Peter was being very selfish, too. Maybe Peter is guarding his own kingdom, his own stardom. On this rock you will build your church. And then Jesus says, I'll be crucified. And Peter says, no, you can't, you can't take this away from me. I've often wondered what his, what his motivation there is for the rebuke. But the Lord answers and the Lord rebukes Peter as well. In verse 23, we have some of the strongest language that Jesus ever uses. He said, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. He recalls one of his loyalist followers, Satan. Jesus is saying that Peter's comment was the same kind of thoughts that the devil would have. Satan had already tempted Jesus to get a kingdom without suffering. Bow down and worship me, said the devil, and all the kingdoms of the world will be yours. Jesus knew that the redemption, that the kingdom of God would come with suffering. And God's plan was redemption. God's plan of redemption was going to come at all costs, even if it costs the death of his son. And praise be to God. Jesus did go to the cross. He did become our sin bearer for us. Amen. You're going to be asked a lot of questions today, especially if you're the parent of small kids. You're going to get a lot of questions coming your way, right? (laughs) But the most important question is this. Who is Jesus? 
Who is Jesus? If he's not your Lord and Savior, today, June 25th, 2023, is a great day to get to know him as Lord and Savior. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for the day. I thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that is in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Father God, for sending your Son to be our sin-bearer, to be our sacrifice. Thank you that he came, he suffered, he was killed, crucified. Thank you that you resurrected him as well, proving once and all for all that sin, death, and the devil are defeated, and we long for that day. Ultimately, will you come back, Jesus, and make all things right. It's in your name I pray. Amen.